Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the IPS Northern Lecture Series by Professor Wang Gangwu, our 12th SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Professor Wang will be delivering his final lecture titled Living Civilizations and National Cultures. Following his lecture, Professor Wang will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. The Q&A session will be chaired by Mr. Bilahari Kausikan, Chairman of the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore and the second SR Nadam Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. Thank you for joining us at the auditorium today. Please be reminded to switch your mobile phones to silent mode. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time uh, during the lecture through the Facebook comments. For our audience members here at the auditorium today, please step up to the mic during the Q&A session to ask your questions. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your views on the event. Please help us fill out the feedback form at the end of our lecture. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would like to invite Professor Wang to begin his lecture titled Living Civilizations and National Cultures. Professor Wang, please. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, friends here will be very happy to know, as I am, that this is my last lecture. <laughs> In my first lecture, I stressed that our region did not even have its own name until after the Second World War. We have now come to the end of that war, so it is time to get back to the moment when the region began to see itself as having a common past and about to have a common future. When I accepted the Northern Fellowship, I said that I would focus on the region called Southeast Asia. It was centered as, on Singapore as its uh, Ujong Tana, a place populated largely with Marantau people whose wanderings made the port city a plural society before it was forced to become a nation state. Southeast Asia was conceived by British strategists, the empire builders, as a strategic concept to rescue as much of their imperial interests as possible after two disastrous wars. The Australians and New Zealanders were distant beneficiaries, and the Americans were agreeable because that supplemented their maritime projections in the Western Pacific. The French, Dutch, and Portuguese were grateful to have some support to return to the region. And during the next five decades, the region was the biggest gainer. Its new nation states discovered that they not only shared a common past, but had similar post-war interests, but also could build a common future together. It was to understand Southeast Asia and the place of Singapore in the region that I've chosen to focus on the difference between cultures and civilizations. The catalyst in the new world order, in this new world order, was a war fought by an Asian power, Imperial Japan. The Japanese claimed to have liberated our region from Western colonialism, and that, and that helped to reveal the fatal weakness in the Enlightenment civilization. They also tried to prepare the Philippines, Indonesia, and Burma for possible nationhood. 
in each of those colonies, there were leaders who welcomed that help, but many others were skeptical and hoped that the Japanese would be defeated. At the same time, Japan demonstrated how their response to Enlightenment modernity helped help to strengthen Japanese national culture. And this had encouraged local nationalists and their leaders to resist the colonial powers that tried to return and make every effort to throw them out. As the weakest of those powers, the Dutch found that they could not sub subdue the nationalists who embarked on a revolutionary war and insisted on keeping all of the Netherlands East Indies as the Republic of Indonesia. The French faced three potential rival nations in their so-called Indochina and uh, had hoped that they could stay on a little longer to sort that out. Uh, when the Cold War came to the region after nationalist China fell to the Chinese Communist Party, the United States encouraged the French to resist Vietnamese demands for an independent nation state. As for the British, they were realistic enough to see that they would have to leave India sooner or later and decided to let Burma go free. By concentrating on Malaya, Singapore, and a few scattered ports and islands, they hoped to stay as long as they could. In short, there were multiple changes to the national borders drawn up in our region by the European empires. Probably the most important in the end were those that were identified by British strategists as separating Southeast Asia from China, from both China and India. That way, the new region could provide a separate theater for future political and military operations. And this reflected the wider rethinking that sought to find a new geopolitical framework that would enable powerful countries to settle their conflicting interests and perhaps, and possibly, help to bring peace to the world. During World War II, the eventual victors, led by the United States, the Soviet Union, and Britain, agreed that the aggressive national empires had undermined the Enlightenment project, the project that they believed represented modern civilization. However, they thought that the project was essentially progressive and could be reformed and revived. Uh, that would require making major corrections to the civilizing mission to stop powerful nation states from fighting one another again. The chastened powers that tried to, then tried to reinvent themselves. The British and the French each succeeded in keeping their spheres of influence by tying former colonies to a nominal commonwealth of nations. Both still had resources to help their former colonies get started as new nation states. But they were aware that the modern world would no longer tolerate national empires and that other civilizations were now modernizing so that they could also stand up against the idea that the Western modern would always be dominant. The West, led by the United States and the Soviet Union, emerged as the two real victors of the Second World War.
They saved Europe from Nazi Germany and East Asia from Imperial Japan and still saw themselves as the leaders of modern civilization. Both were products of the Christian European civilization that had produced the Age of Enlightenment. But they could not agree as to which parts of the Enlightenment should serve as the core of the renewed modern civilization, post-war civilization. Nor could they agree on the means to be employed to achieve the results they wanted. The liberal Americans focused on the idea that freedom was a universal value. It was the key to capitalism, to the capitalism and the economic development that made the West so prosperous and powerful. And they gave priority, in fact, to the democratic rights of the individual. The Soviet Union, in the hands of the Stalinists, rejected the power of capitalists to enrich themselves at the expense of their workers. It concentrated on the Marx-Leninist idea that only a strong party state using central planning methods could decide how wealth should be redistributed. The two superpowers knew that they would become rivals in world affairs and acted immediately to divide Europe into zones of contestation. They also set out to convert the rest of the world to their respective interpretations of what was truly progressive. And they were especially sensitive to the aspirations of all those former colonies of the Western Europeans that were now embarked each on their own nation-building project. In one vital area, the United States led the way. It examined the lessons of the failed League of Nations that it did not join, even though it was President Woodrow Wilson who worked so hard to set it up after the First World War. President Roosevelt made sure this time round that the US would play the, would play the key role to design the United Nations organization to replace that failed league. This UN would avoid the earlier mistake, uh, mistake of having empires like Britain, France, Japan, and Italy as permanent members of an executive council. Instead, the UN Security Council's five permanent members would be given veto powers against decisions that any one of them disagreed with. However, the most important advance was to agree that every UN member, however large or small, was a nation state of equal status. There would no longer be empires of any kind. All of, all of, the, the, <clears throat> all of them could only join as nation states. And as each part of these of those former empires were decolonized, the new states that were created would be admitted as full-fledged members. This was a huge step forward. With that foundation, the United Nations not only uh, um, the United Nations set out to establish a comprehensive set of principles to enable their institutions to develop a peaceful world order. The Enlightenment spirit here reflected the borderless civilization that had been dominant in the fields of science and technology and in areas of economic development. With feelings of admiration and hope, I recall 
the debate about what kind of Malaya our future nation would be like. My generation saw the United Nations as a guarantor of national sovereignty, an institution that would enable the world to avoid future wars. It was proof that the Enlightenment modern could be rescued and redefined so that all civilizations would seek progress together. The new nation states could now concentrate on building national cultures that would frame their future identities with lofty principles. It soon became clear that saving key parts of the Enlightenment civilization would not be enough. Almost immediately after the United Nations was launched, local wars had to be fought against a return to any kind of imperialism by the more powerful states. In Europe, the US and the Soviet Union found themselves confronting each other in the Cold War. While both sides avoided the language of empires, imperial overtones reappeared as they each geared up to gather dependent or client states. Their rivalry was reframed in ideological terms that were drawn, in fact, from earlier phases of the Enlightenment that they had shared together. Some of the rhetoric was couched in terms of good versus evil, as each side called for all nation states to choose between the American-led West and the Soviet bloc in Eurasia. In Asia, the most dramatic change came with the victory of the Chinese Communist Party. The United Nations framework was immediately tested when the People's Republic of China sided with the Soviet Union and was denied entry into the UN as China. Thereafter, the Security Council was used as a battleground where the United States, the Republic of China, the ROC, and the remaining two empires, Britain and France, opposed the Soviet Union. And this stopped the People's Republic, the PRC, from taking its place in the United Nations for over 20 years. The decision demonstrated that a gathering of nation states could not be an instrument for global civilization if the national interests of superpowers always prevailed. In other words, the United Nations too had a fatal weakness. For the next decades, it was clear that the imperial past had not gone away. The United States and the Soviet Union were virtual empires, each with so-called security partners that fought through their proxies. In our region, that was done via a hot war in Vietnam. This was a dangerous threat to the new nation states in which each had communist movements that challenged the nationalist leadership. For the two superpowers, the next 40 years became a tug of war with every state asked to join one side or the other. Fortunately, their direct confrontation, uh, as in the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, was the only time when the whole world felt the threat of a Third World War. Learning from that experience, the superpowers fought by other means under the mad shadow of mutually assured destruction. It was a struggle where the U.S. had a clear advantage. Through its global maritime power, its free market economy was far superior to the largely continental economy 
that the Soviet Union depended on. Outside of Eurasia, the Soviet Union struggled to keep up and even lost the support of China, of Mao Zedong. And after that, with China's success following Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms, the competition for global development moved away from the West to, to Asia. Thus, the United States defended Western Europe successfully, and the, Europe, and, the Euro, and the Soviet Union system rapidly collapsed. With victory for one side of the Enlightenment civilization, the US now became the world's sole super nation state. As victor, as the victor of this ideological war, it saw itself as the beacon for universal values. Its all-round power would now enable it to act as the guardian of global civilization. In that role, American leaders set out to demonstrate that they were ready to behave like a civilization state. Southeast Asia clearly benefited from the peace that ensued. The region's self-discovery four decades earlier had enabled it to appreciate how its respective local cultures had grown in confidence over the centuries by learning from its neighboring civilizations. They continued to do that even when they were under Western rule. Despite being under Cold War shadows, they seized every opportunity to build their nation states to meet their own needs. Not least, they observed how the civilizations that they had learned from in the past were modernizing to deal with every new challenge that they, they, were, they, were, they, were, they were faced. All four ancient civilizations, the Indic, the Sinic, the Islamic, and the Christian European were living civilizations. The Christian European civilization had borne the brunt of the initial changes in Europe itself as the Enlightenment had developed by challenging its spiritual authority. But the civilization continued to stand for spiritual values that had wider appeal while its missionaries followed the national empires around the world. In Southeast Asia, it remained strong in the Philippines and won local converts in most countries, even after they gained independence. In some, it was also seen as protectors of native minorities. The peoples from the three other civilizations, the Indic, the Islamic, and the Sinic, continued to interact within our region's cultures. They saw how the new nation states had internalized what they wanted from their imperial masters. Although some had their respect for tradition much weakened, to the extent of admitting that parts of the heritage were backward, they were all prepared to renew their civilizations so that they could compete and prosper and prosper. One thing was clear. The living civilizations acknowledged the vitality and dynamism of the Enlightenment modern. They recognized that that civilization was borderless and at its best, stood for reason and the advantage of freedom, the advantages of freedom, and for the equal rights of their citizens. They sought material progress through educational and professional training and took advantage of the revised Enlightenment modernity that made everything available for them to learn. Some of the elites went further 
to reject the claims of transcendental faiths in favor of secular government, that governance that allowed practices that met people's spiritual needs. The full story is a complex one, and this is not the place to tell it. Let me return to Southeast Asia to outline the way its peoples sought to develop their national cultures. I shall not cover each country in turn. Instead, the focus will be on two developments from which each state had much to learn. The developments encapsulated the process of re-education that also helped to shape the region's understanding of its common interests. The first was what our leaders experienced at the Bandung Conference of 1955. The other was what they managed to learn when they turned a half ASEAN, the original Association of Southeast Asian Nations, into the full 10-member organization that it now is. Both were examples of what our national leaders saw in the living civilizations with which they were in contact. Each new nation adapted readily to whatever served its needs. At the same time, each discovered distinct ways of dealing with their common interests. They seemed able to do this with the confidence that came from centuries of dealing with living civilizations. Most historians would agree that the Bandung Conference promised more than it could deliver. Some would argue it was mostly sound and fury that showed that even when all the civilizations got together, they had nothing better to offer. Its declared purpose was to bring together those members of the United Nations who were opposed to the world being divided between two antagonistic blocs, represented by the Warsaw Pact states and those in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. In other words, the conference wanted to free itself from the divided Enlightenment modern with which each other, which, with which each set out to destroy the other. Of the 29 nations that attended, eight represented Southeast Asia, North and South Vietnam, plus six others already independent. The colony of Singapore, the protectorates of Malaya and Brunei, as well as their British masters, uh, were not invited. Together with other members, of the permanent members of the United Nations, they too were not invited. Representatives of various civilizations were present, the Indic by India and the Buddhist states, the Islamic by several states of the Middle East, and the Sinic by the People's Republic of China and Japan. The conference was hosted in our region by its largest nation, Indonesia, a country that had found inspiration from three civilizations and was led by nationalist leaders who also identified with the Enlightenment modern. The participants could be described as those who were reacting to a flawed world order, at least in their eyes. But it could also be seen as an effort to demonstrate the combined power of modernized civilizations that did not want to be dominated by the Enlightenment West. It could even claim that the slogans were attractive to half the world's population. It was even followed up, it was even followed up 
with an Afro-Asian solidarity conference and a summit in Yugoslavia that led to the larger non-aligned movement. This so-called Bandung spirit remains as an expression of good intentions and wishful thinking. But it did show that although proud of their civilizations, all the new nations aspired to become modern. It also showed that it was unable to influence the course of the Cold War. However, it did provide an indication, a slight indication perhaps, that Southeast Asia could become an active player in global affairs, even when conditions were so difficult. This takes me to the second example of our region's potential, the formation of ASEAN. This is a remarkable story. I had referred earlier to the exceptional fact that half the states in our region were maritime in outlook, while the other half was continental in orient orientation. What was also significant was that the Cold War was from beginning to end between the maritime powers led by the United States and the continental bloc led by the Soviet Union. Also, the new states of Southeast Asia could not fail to notice that the American allies, Imperial Britain and France, were returning to the region. When these three became members of what was called the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, CETO, that was established as a kind of a, a local version of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, with only the Philippines and Thailand joining. It reduced Southeast Asia, uh, CETO's credibility as a regional organization. It was a sign that our region would prefer to develop its own identity and not be locked into a Cold War that could be inimical to their interests as independent nation states. But there was no alternative to this CETO that united all the anti-communist states of the region to prevent the Soviet Union and the PRC from advancing south via Vietnam. Only Indonesia, under President Sukarno and his nationalist colleagues, still basking in the Bandung spirit, stood firm against an organization that was inspired by what they saw as former colonial powers. When the Federation of Malaya became independent, the Prime Minister Tunku Abdul Rahman also chose to stay out of CETO. But Sukarno opposed the formation of a greater Malaysia that included northern Borneo and launched his Confrontasi campaign. By this time, it was clear that Indonesia's party communist, the PKI, was very close to the CCP in China. An abortive Gestapo coup brought the struggle to the open and led to the destruction of all left-wing forces in the country. The new President Suharto then agreed to a local regional organization, and in that way, ASEAN was formed. This was related to the British withdrawal from northern Borneo to form a major state in the heart of the region, the Malaysia Federation. While you also mark the alternative to what Bandung had stood for, this ASEAN also represented the region's desire to stamp a local, a local identity on the decolonization process. Such a shared effort to, to protect collective interests 
could be said to have marked a turning point in regional self-awareness. ASEAN had a modest beginning in the midst of the Vietnam War. Its five members now included the newly independent Republic of Singapore. Those who saw it as nothing more than a political club on the side of the United States and its allies expected little from its establishment. Indeed, it could do little to affect the course of the hot war nearby uh, that in Vietnam that the United States was at the time already looked like losing. Each could therefore concentrate, each of the countries in ASEAN could therefore concentrate on nation building and reshaping their complex societies. Indonesia in particular had recently faced deep divisions among its widespread communities and its, and its economy needed a great deal of foreign assistance and investment. Both Malaysia and Singapore were undergoing a painful process of virtual decoupling. Malaysia was in a much happier position, having almost doubled its territory and got rid of its a dissatisfied neighbor, Singapore. As for the new city-state, Singapore, it had the challenging task to build its plural society into a secure and prosperous nation-state. All five had one other thing in common. Each was committed to becoming modern in as many ways as possible while defending the country's mix of local cultures. At the core of modernity were capital investment and the re-education of a new generation of skilled personnel who could provide the technological advancement that each country urgently needed. The nationalist leaders were aware that they also had powerful protectors in the United States and its allies against those who sought to overturn the established order in the name of people's revolution. Fortunately for the ASEAN states, before the US lost the Vietnam War, President Nixon had succeeded in wooing Mao Zedong's China away from the Soviet Union. By so doing, it enabled new partners to stop the expansion of Vietnamese power into Cambodia and Laos. The role that the five ASEAN states, now joined by Brunei, Brunei Sultanate, the role they played in helping Cambodia preserve its sovereignty is now well known. But it is important to stress ASEAN's input in that success. That was a major step in showing its members that the association could exercise agency within the region. The experience encouraged the region's leaders to pursue the goal of uniting with the communist states in the region to extend ASEAN membership to all the 10 Southeast Asian states. It was a huge task of diplomatic skill, discovery of common interests, and frankly, a very rare patience. Not least was the commitment to modernity combined with sensitivity to local cultural differences that each member had cultivated for centuries. Singapore was in an exceptional position, bearing in mind that the Republic was a totally new creation with a history only two years older than ASEAN itself. 
from a modern port city to a brief period as the 14th state of a new federation that was culturally linked to the Nusantara world, the Republic seemed unprepared to be a player in a new regional organization. However, its leaders had long shared their lives with the descendants of Marantau peoples from different cultures and civilizations. In addition, they had actively reached out beyond the region in order to better understand the special needs of a modern plural society. By 1999, all 10 states in Southeast Asia had joined ASEAN, and it was now in a position to represent the whole region. That became possible in part because the Cold War had ended and a new world order had emerged. There were different geopolitical calculations to be made in the context of the new Enlightenment civilization led by the United States. Those who believed that the US was the only light on the hill expected a new stage of globalization under its leadership. Those believed that there were other modern civilizations foresaw that there would come a time when powerful nation states would clash in the name of civilization, of their own civilizations. Indeed, there took place a largely academic debate at the time between Francis Fukuyama and Samuel Huntington, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with that, as to whether that could happen. The matter came to be tested when the United States acted swiftly to respond to the jihadist attacks on the New York Twin Towers in September 2001. It was surprising when the US, as the world's most powerful nation state, confidently invaded two sovereign states, Iraq and Afghanistan. With only the support of its Cold War allies, there were echoes of the national empire acting in the name of civilization against barbarism. The United States clearly had the military power to do whatever they wanted. It had the measure of the civilization that had been modernizing since the, since the war. It could see that there was a lack of a super state among the Islamic faithful in the Middle East and North Africa. The divisions in Turkic and Iranic, Iranian Central Asia, as well as on the Indian subcontinent, were also likely to remain permanent. As for the syncretic nature of Nusantara Islam, that had been shaped to serve local cultures and was not designed for global conflicts. They noted that there were new generations of jihadists who were prepared to fight US to fight against US dominance to their death. But these groups could not expect sustained support from any Islamic state, and the US had little reason to fear them. The US had also observed that Pakistan had followed India to acquire nuclear weapons. That did ring alarm bells in Washington. However, it soon saw how both the countries were careful to balance each other, however precariously, and neither power was likely to turn against the West. In any case, the Indic civilization in India was still struggling to develop its economy and was not in any condition 
to challenge American supremacy. Given all that, this then left the West, the United States in particular, with the homeland of Sinic civilization, the People's Republic of China. The global struggle between the US and the PRC today has become everyone's daily fare. How did that happen? The subject has been large enough for debates in numerous conferences and workshops, and indeed many volumes by experts have been published. Uh, this is not a place even for its outlines to be adequately covered. I shall therefore limit myself to a brief survey of the civilizational and cultural factors that have surfaced, notably where they could be related to what Southeast Asian nation states would now have to face. I had earlier outlined how Imperial America had offered China the gentle, gentler face of Western civilization before the CCP defeated the nationalists in 1949. That changed when Mao Zedong sided with the Soviet Union and the US did everything it could to stop the PRC for taking, from taking its place as China in the United Nations. In time, it saw how Maoist China was alienated from Russia and successfully detached it from the Soviet bloc. The Cultural Revolution then drew attention to the civilizational differences that the PRC now had with both the NATO West as well as the Soviet Union. And these differences contributed to undermining Chinese efforts to industrialize its economy and to get any kind of prosperity for its people. The CCP thus learned a hard lesson. And after Mao Zedong's death, Deng Xiaoping reversed all of its policies, all of his policies. The Chinese people were delighted to see the country connect with the free market capitalism that had globalized the world afresh and readily opened their colleges and universities to all scientific knowledge. The dramatic changes in productivity and the success of market reforms were breathtaking. In contrast, the Soviet economy was clearly sputtering. The Russian leadership faltered and the Soviet Union's collapse became only a matter of time. As the Chinese saw it, their success, that is the Chinese success, had come from civilizational capacities that had drawn on deep historical roots. When the Cold War ended and the triumphant United States was poised to lead the world, the two faces of the Enlightenment modern resurfaced. Its liberal face hardened as the, super set, as the superpower set out to ensure that there would never again be a serious challenge, a challenger to United States dominance. Looking around, all was reassuring, especially when China's reformists seemed prepared to abandon their Maoist past and learn from the US experience. That optimism came to a halt when the Tiananmen demonstrations led to a bloody end and both the US and Chinese leaders had to turn to their cultural backgrounds afresh. This included a review of each country's national interests. Both observed how the Soviet Union broke up into more than a dozen independent nation states. 
U.S. strategists worked on the scenarios that could follow. President Clinton was then briefed that unlike the Islamic, the Indic, or the Indic, the Sinic civilization in China was founded on a unitary imperial system. It was now also a sovereign modern state of many nationalities. And after two revolutions, Chinese nationalists, as well as communist leaders, had gone a long way to replace their ancient traditions with the Enlightenment modern. But both groups had ambitions to rejuvenate their civilization. Americans placed their faith in the Enlightenment civilization that hinged on social and cultural mobility. They hoped that the success of capitalism would produce a middle class that could bring China to liberal democracy. Although that has not happened, that faith was not as naive as being depicted today. Many PRC officials and intellectuals at the time were persuaded of the merits of greater freedom for the national revival. A greater degree of freedom would not only inspire capable entrepreneurs, but also the scientists and engineers who would ensure that someday the PRC would become the world's leading economy. When a confident US set out to transform the Middle East by attacking Iraq and Afghanistan, Chinese leaders supported its war against terrorism and concentrated on establishing Chinese socialism with carefully selected capitalist institutions. They expected their success to demonstrate that China was not an ancient civilization trying to modernize. They had succeeded in using Enlightenment modernity to reconnect with the country's unbroken history as a strong centralized state. By sifting out the liberal values of the modern that hampered Chinese efforts to build a sovereign state as they, see, as they saw it, they could eventually combine the new enlightenment with the exceptional Sinic vision of Tianxia, all under heaven, as a civilization state. The United States acting as a guardian of modern civilization was also akin to a civilization state. When it was confident that only its values were universal, it could look at China's ambitions, ambitions without any fear. But after failures in the Middle East, there was growing alarm. Watching the PRC emerge like a civilization being rebuilt as a party nation, the US began to see a possible threat to its global hegemony, as well as its leadership of the civilized world. The possibility of that happening led it to round up its allies to contain the PRC or, if necessary, destroy the model altogether. The ideological portrayal of China as a replica of the evil Leninist Russia is the main thrust in international discourse. It gained further emphasis when Taiwan and the South China Sea became the center of attention. Both the ROC, that's the Republic of China in Taiwan, and the PRC administer some islands in the South China Sea. The PRC claimed to have inherited the dotted lines that the ROC, the Taiwan, in Taiwan, in 1947 had drawn on maps of the sea. That placed 
half the Southeast Asian nation states on the front line of a disputed zone. In addition, new energy resources were identified and all claimants have militarized several of the islands to protect their claims. Furthermore, the US insisted that the sea is open international waters and regularly sailed its naval forces to support its claim to protect Taiwan and the region from Chinese bullying. The PRC, however, saw the sea as a weak backyard that had made China vulnerable to hostile attacks. In fact, they saw Southeast Asia primarily as the base from which the West had attacked China successfully in the 19th century. Now the sea is also a gateway to the rest of the maritime world. In fact, it is now an economic lifeline for China. As for Taiwan, the US has focused on whatever makes Taiwan appear as a de facto independent state and appears ready to go to war if the PRC tried to take the island by force. Whether all action was now couched in terms of America first or China first, both powers had shifted their position from civilizational competition to calls for the gathering of allies and partners, as well as the best possible weaponry in defense of nationalist interests. Together, the prospects for dangerous conflict could not be more uncertain. I hope that security experts, the political leaders, will find ways to keep the peace. My only regret is that the superpowers concerned have moved away from the idea that civilizations could be winsome and borderless and now concentrate on nationalist cultures that could increase the danger to world peace. Our region began, as you recall one of my earlier lectures, as a large peninsula developed by agrarian communities in river valleys and linked to an archipelago of trading ports whose peoples moved freely across many seas. Both halves of the region interacted deeply with an ancient Indic civilization that remained influential for at least a millennium. And after that, three other civilizations, the Islamic, the Sinic, and the Christian European, all helped to develop the region's local and national cultures. It was these cultures that faced the Enlightenment modern imposed on them by Western national empires in the 19th century. They observed what the older civilizations, older civilizations did to modernize and also used their experiences of colonial modern, those of colonial modern, to help them build nation states with new national borders. At the end of the Cold War, all 10 states came together as an enlarged ASEAN, and they learned to deal with the globalized world as a single regional association. However, their ties with other civilizations were retained largely through its mix of peoples who remained proud of their respective civilizations and helped to keep their plural societies alive. In the development of ASEAN, the cultural responses of its members to modernization are all founded on common, on common aspirations 
to build nation states. These could be grouped as follows. For Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei, the links with their Islamic Ummah have grown stronger. Similarly, the links of most Filipinos with their Christian and trans-Pacific co-religionists remain firm, despite the distances involved. A common faith continues to connect Thailand, Burma, Laos, and Cambodia to countries that have large numbers of Buddhist believers. As for Vietnam, it has retained its Sinai culture through a shared history of recent revolutions. And then there is Singapore, with its majority of citizens of Chinese origins having obvious links with modern Sinic civilizations. It is encouraging to see how these different groupings have not prevented the 10 nation states from acting in their common interests whenever they needed to do so. Singapore tells an extraordinary story of adjustment and adaptation that is especially pertinent to the subject of these lectures. As an unexpected nation state, its first leaders did well by the decision to embrace its modern administrative and legal heritage and expand the range of, in, of its imperial economic connections. It saw the United Nations as the embodiment of a renewed enlightenment, enlightenment civilization. This protected sovereign states, wherever located and however small. With this shield, the island state was enabled to nation build with a plural society that drew from several living civilizations. From a unique combination of policies and practices, the new state laid the foundations of a first world, na a first world nation at the heart of Southeast Asia. Everyone was conscious that three quarters of Singapore's population is of Chinese origins. That had always been a source of unease in the region. Furthermore, no one foresaw, foresaw the swift rise of the PRC and its turn towards a state-centered capitalism that provided it with the economic power to make it appear as a threat to the United States. Nobody anticipated that a severely weakened Sinic civilization could have used its two revolutions to achieve modernization so quickly. It now claimed to be the successor to a continuous Sinic centralized state. When China also claimed to have drawn inspiration from the same Enlightenment roots as the West, the US began to demonize the CCP-led party state as returning to the ideology previously represented by the Soviet Union. This totally ignores China's deep roots as a, in a civilization that had considered itself central and exceptional for three millennia. China's success in using the developed world's free market economy to reach out to the developing world has made its modern claims more credible than anyone, than anyone thought possible. Equally surprising has been the American response, politically polarized by extremists of every color and creed, the United States has called for an aggressive nationalism against the PRC. That seemed to have been the only call that could unite the country.
In response, China has revived the nationalism that had enabled its people to resist Japanese invasions a century earlier. What is new is that both the PRC and the US now see themselves as representatives of progressive civilizations. The US, as guardian of the liberal enlightenment, has portrayed the PRC as a throwback to the failed ideology of communism. It has now asked for its military allies in NATO to move further east to help end the threat of a rerun. Together, they hope to restore the liberal dominance that had triumphantly won the Cold War. I cannot predict the outcome of that dangerous rivalry. The uncertainty, the uncertainty is likely to stay. Where Singapore in Southeast Asia is concerned, I'm one of many who have been concerned as to what those of Chinese origins here might do when the PRC calls on them as Chinese to sympathize with its aspirations for the future. Needless to say, there will also be repercussions in other ASEAN states. But no other state has a majority whose populace might be expected to provide a singular response to this inescapable dilemma. Given Southeast Asia's history of local cultures selecting what they needed from the civilizations they encountered, Singapore's best interest seems to be to support the common aspirations of all member states of our region. What it could do is remind the new nation states of their experiences with civilizations in the past, the way they grew their local cultures by dealing with and learning from neighboring civilizations. When they had chosen to learn, uh, what, they have, what they had chosen to learn were qualities that were borderless, those that not identified with any na national political systems. Having done that for centuries, each ASEAN member had become confident in dealing with unpredictable conditions. In that way, each has been able to strengthen its local cultures and now shape its own modern national culture. That was why the nation states were able to come together and stay as united as ASEAN when it was in their combined interest to do so. Singapore as a state has chosen to stay with this common experience. It is committed to the idea that its citizens of whatever origin should respond only to borderless civilizational appeals and not to nationalist ones. At its simplest, where the PRC is concerned, it could distinguish between current national culture and timeless Sinic civilization. In Chinese, this would recognize a difference between Zhongguo Wenhua and Zhonghua Wenming. China today has them both and may not think it necessary to, or important to project them separately. Singapore's modern culture would require its leaders to try their hardest to keep the national and the civilizational clearly differentiated. I do not want to give the impression that this would be easy to do. Careful judgments would have to be consistently made, and many cultural specialists 
would have to be involved in dis to distinguish the two. But if successfully done, it could produce, it should produce results that avoid many misunderstandings by all concerned. Its most important contribution is to ensure that Singaporeans of Chinese origin will be, act, will be able to act in ways that the whole ASEAN community can understand and be comfortable with. That, show, uh, that would show how a modern nation state could, as with cultures in the past, coexist with a variety of living civilizations. There is no question at all that all ASEAN states would closely observe how Singapore resolves its exceptional conundrum. The modernity with which the nation states have identified should provide each of them with the capacity to deal with social plurality, although the scale of each manifestation is different. Furthermore, if Singapore can sort out its problems with its citizenry and show how that response conforms to Southeast Asian experiences, it should strengthen the region's confidence in, res in responding to its relations with other civilizations. The region is fortunate to be one that is both maritime and continental, and also located strategically between two oceans that are vital to global prosperity. If it can hold firm as a united ASEAN that coexists with living civilizations, that might help to prevent our peace-seeking, multi-civilizational world from descending into warring national cultures that would threaten all of us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Prof Wang. For those watching the lecture on Facebook, please submit your comments and questions through the Facebook comment box. For our audience members here, please introduce yourself first before asking a question. May I now invite Mr. Bilahari Kausikan, Chairman of the Middle East Institute, to, to start the Q&A session. Thank you, Professor Wang. That was um, truly breathtaking. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think you will agree with me that um, Professor Wang Gangwu's SR Northern Lectures are unique in this entire series of SR Northern Lectures. I don't think any uh, previous set of lectures has had quite the role and broad sweep, and nor have they been animated with such subtle but brave concepts. <laughs> uh, and the result is, I think, philosophic history in its true sense, where you have broad concepts allied to the facts on which history must be grounded. I think um, this has been unique also in giving us an extremely valuable, a uniquely valuable background to some of the contemporary problems that we face. I'm not just talking about the geopolitical rivalry between the US and China. Of course, that, is, that, that casts its shadow over almost every aspect of international life today. 
And I think it has become a structural condition of international relations for the foreseeable future. But more essentially and more immediately for us is what you have just heard in the last part of this lecture, which is something I think a number of us have been grappling with, but without the erudition and depth of knowledge of um, Professor Wang. I was going to, um, you know, I mean, Professor Wang is truly really unique. I was tempted to call him uh, a living national treasure. <laughs> However, that seems too narrow. <laughs> Maybe I could call him a living civilizational force, intellectual force. But anyway, I was going to... <laughs> a living in civilizational force that we are fortunate to have here in Singapore, at least for now. <laughs> because civilizations know no boundaries, as we have just heard. I was going to exercise my moderator's privilege to ask the first question, but having listened to what you have all just listened, I need some time to collect my own thoughts to ask an intelligent question. So I'm going to start, we are opening the floor to the audience, and I may come back later with my own question. In fact, I probably will, I can't resist, but I have to collect my thoughts first. Uh, I ask you to stand up, use one of the two mic microphones which are at the side, in the two aisles, and please identify yourself. And please, I beseech you, so as to enable the maximum number of people to ask questions, please keep your questions succinct, and don't make a speech in the guise of asking a question, as it's all too common on such occasions. Sir. My name is Diota Jin. Thank you, Professor Wong. Excellent talk. I wonder if you could comment on two particular examples. There's the coup d'etat in Myanmar and the Chinese behavior in South China Sea. Whether these two examples illustrate the weakness of ASEAN, perhaps a fatal weakness. Thank you. Good questions. They are examples of the kind of test that ASEAN had been facing for many, many years. In fact, ASEAN has never had things easy from the very beginning. And, and Myanmar certainly is, a, is an extraordinary problem. But in a sense, if you look back at it all, it all stems from our difficulty with the whole idea of building nation states. Uh, as I said earlier on, nation state is a totally new concept to this part of the world. We had kingdoms, sultanates, uh, rajas, and all kinds of all kinds of varieties of feudal and dynastic states in the past. But the idea of a nation state was totally new. And I think the, the region has done very well to adapt itself to the fact that there were all these plural societies under different kinds of rulers were there as our material for making and shaping nation states. And we've done reasonably well. But bearing in mind that almost all of us started with borders which we didn't ourselves draw. Uh, with exception, in fact, I can think of no exception, all the national borders of the ASEAN states were drawn by somebody else. And we were left carrying the baby, so to speak, to try and make something of it and nation build. And our efforts from that point of view has been enormously successful in my mind, much more successful than anyone anticipated. Even though I would say they all face serious problems still, it's still work in progress. 
And Myanmar is probably the worst of all the 10 examples that we have. And if you look at it, the way the borders were drawn, they were drawn by the British and uh, drawn out of, uh, from different, different groups, so many ethnic groups, not just simple small groups, but large ethnic groups with their own traditions and their own different cultures were all pulled together into this map of Burma, which was then left to the Union of Burma when it became independent. And the hope that somehow they would bring everybody together and find new ways of compromising and, and establishing a nation state. But from the very beginning, it was not in the nature of the Burmese culture of that time, the national culture of their military in particular, to, to compromise and find a solution. So that was number one. So I think we're, we're now facing the real test, the biggest test of our region. How can we survive this? And I'm by no means optimistic about the answer. Uh, that we will find a compromise somehow, but it will not be one that will make anybody happy, I, I regret to say. As for your second question, again, there are so many complicated issues involved. Fundamentally, it is this. China had never had enemies coming by sea in the past. Only in the last 150 years did they realize that they were vulnerable at sea, out of 3,000 years of history. They've never had enemies, never a threat by sea. But since the 19th century, it now realizes you can be attacked by sea. So it's become very defensive in its, in its attitude. In the past, it's always been defensive up in the north, overland enemies from Central Asia. And they remain sensitive. They're still very, very good at handling Central Asian and overland continental matters. But with the sea, it is really new to them. They've never known what a sea border meant. And I'm not sure anybody at the time when they drew up those nine or 11 dotted lines, which started with 11, whether they knew what, what it meant to draw map, uh, draw lines on the sea. I don't think anybody understood that. But anyway, that's what they did. And uh, the PRC, uh, as they see it, inherited that. They didn't actually draw the lines, incidentally, as you all know. It was drawn by the Republic of China at the time. And I think when the lines were drawn, uh, it was still very active as nationalist China, as a close ally of the United States. And they were all aware of those lines being drawn. As a schoolboy, I remember maps of China, which already had this tongue which coming around in, in 1947. It was already there. And the, the communists took over that map. And they said, well, you inherited the borders of the ROC. We are the next, the China. They inherited that. And therefore, we must defend it. This is the map of China that, that, that is part of the sovereignty that came with, uh, with their victory, their legitimacy as victors of the battlefield. So that's what it's, it's, it's about. And they now say, as recently we heard it yesterday, I think, Qin uh, Gang, the new Minister of Foreign Affairs, particularly re-emphasized again and again, this is the red line. Don't cross it. And that's how seriously they're prepared to go to war about that. It's true. But whether they will go to war on their own or they will go to war only because they are provoked to war, I do not know. But that's a different story. It's, it, it's a different, it's now taken over by the US-China competition and rivalry in a way that has nothing to do with the more abstract ideas or legal, legal ideas of what sovereignty means. Thank you. Um, hello, I'm Ng Yi Sheng. I'm an independent writer. 
Um, I've been listening to your old lectures. I'm really fascinated with uh, your <coughs> ideas about civilization and culture, and I'd like to ask about how it might apply to a broader view of history, because I'm, I've been very interested in decolonial theory, as written about by Walter Mignolo and others. And yeah, he's um, challenging that this whole idea of Christian Enlightenment modernity um, by drawing ideas he's trying to center on indigenous cultures of like the Americas, um, of Africa, of, uh, you know, and um, in more regional contexts, uh, people are trying to do similar things with um, the Orang Laut, um, or an Orang Asli ways of thinking. So I was wondering, would you say there is a possibility of building civilizational ideas in the future from, um, from cultures which were, which were which didn't start off as um, urban or literate is there a way you know a way, uh, would, is it possible to build up these uh, civilizations of the future um, based on say like um, indigenous American or um, or maritime Southeast Asian thinking um, it, it, it's a question that I did try to answer in my earlier lectures. I have found the two words extremely confusing in the uses by various people in their arguments, both in historical as well as political and, and cultural writings. And I try to distinguish it, to try and make it very clear that there is a difference between the two. And the, the thing about it is that everybody has cultures, all the indigenous groups everywhere, everybody's got cultures, from the simple, the most primitive ones to the large culture that you, is represented by a big country like United States or even China today or Japan or India. Every, everybody can have cultures. But civilization is something different. Civilization is something that doesn't belong to any particular nation. And it is, it's the quality that distinguishes itself from cultures is that it is borderless. It, has, it represents certain qualities about thinking, about behaving, about living, about how human beings should see their future, past, present, and future, that actually transcends borders that, that divide nations, cultures, tribes, whatever, and so on. And once you separate them, then you can see that may, there were many attempts to, to build nations, uh, to build civilizations in the past. Many of them failed and died out and so on. So far, until now, the only four or five that are still living civilizations, I, and as, I, as I described them. These are still civilizations that offer their everything to anybody who can, who can take the best of it and make what they like of it. They offer them because they are so good in themselves. And this includes Enlightenment civilization, all the way from the Indic, Sinic, Islamic. They all offer something, or Christian European, they offer something that is beyond borders. And because they are good in themselves, they are attractive, you draw from them, you, you, take, you take what you like, and you are free to take so nobody tells you what you should take and what you shouldn't take. The moment you try to do that, that already crosses the line into something else, because you can say, oh, that is not civilized. You cannot do that, or, and so on. That becomes judgmental and of a different nature. But the civilization that exists are those which are so attractive, and because they stand for something more than just cultures and na na nationalities and tribes and, 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 and different groups. So they all may have cultures, and they can all have cultures drawn from different civilizations and develop in various different ways. Each of them should be respected for what they are, but it's not the same as civilizations. 
But the moment you claim to be a civilization and you say, I represent the civilization, I determine what is civilized and what is not, then you are creating a new, new kind of framework. But that's, that's I, say, I, I say, that is no longer a civilization the moment you have to do that. So when a country says, I'm the leader of this, this is what it ought to be, already that shows that it's already beyond, that's not civilization. That's something like, we are the best, we are superior, we know better, and you should know better. And if you are, know what is good for you, you better copy us, or else you'll, get, you'll be worse off. That kind of talk and that kind of rhetoric is not civilizational. That is cultural, from a dominant hegemonic culture. Yes, behind there. Uh, for those of you who are online who have submitted questions, I'll get to you in a moment after these two gentlemen. Hi, Prof. Uh, very Can interesting. you identify yourself? Uh, sorry, I'm Shamsuri from IPS. Uh, so I'm a research fellow with IPS. Now, I found it interesting, the, the part where you say there was there's concern where the, there's societies with large Chinese populations and concern about the local population being pressured to sympathize with China. It's very similar earlier in history about the same concerns for the Malay community, right? And then we talked about the kind of policies that was put in place to ensure that Singapore remains secure. So now that you've brought up this issue, where do you see us, Singapore, putting policies in place to ensure security should these things happen? Thank you. Uh, well, the, uh, the government has done so many policies, I can't go into all of them. They have been very sensitive from the beginning that this is, this is a reality. And after all, this is not just to Singapore. The, the Chinese problem, as they call it, was already a sensitive one in the whole of the region from even before the war. Uh, there were always that problem among, in different parts of the world. So the, the, the government of Singapore from day one was already sensitive to it, and they've been trying to work out different ways. And I, as I said, I, the long list of things, not everything has succeeded, but it seemed to me on the whole, they got the right idea. They recognized that it is important to try and differentiate. They didn't use the words. I'm trying to frame it into words which I think can make it clearer. And that is to distinguish the fact, at the same time, if you believe in a plural society, you're not going to tell the Chinese or the Malays or the Indians to say, stop being a Malay, stop being an Indian, stop being a Chinese. That's nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense. If you believe in a plural society and you say all of these are equal, then you're all equal in the eyes of the state, then what you want to do is to say, while you are equal, you are actually of the state of Singapore. You belong to the plural society of Singapore. It will develop its national culture based on this particular mix of plurality in Singapore. But each way, you can still love, respect your civilizational roots, the things that you make, make you Chinese, Malay, or Indian. Perfectly fine, as long as you distinguish them very clearly from the national interest of those countries that claim that civilization. Now, that's a different matter. That is culture. That's national culture. So at least by using cultures and civilizations differently and separately, I think it makes it a bit easier. It's not, it's not going to be easy, as I said. It's not easy. And the government has been doing it. You can see it. And they have struggled with it over the decades. And they face different problems. And the people within Singapore, the Chinese people themselves, have not always understood it and not always been happy with what the government is doing. 
But this struggle goes on, and the tension, I think, will remain. But as long as it is clear in everybody's mind that you can differentiate between a civilization and a, cult and a national culture, then you have a chance. Because by separating them, then you can try and distinguish between what it is. For example, if you say you love Chinese poetry, calligraphy, art, music, whatever it is, Chinese food, I mean, that's got nothing to do with governments and nationalities anywhere. You can, you can do what you like. But if, but if the Chinese government, and it's not that stupid, come along and say, you must like this food and not that food. You must like this music and not that music. You, you can immediately tell, that's not what, I'm, that's not what I, love. I love. What I love is because of its quality. Of course, I love the poetry. I like the calligraphy. I like the music. Or I like, for example, for the Indians, for me, the most beautiful thing about it is their theater, their, their drama, their, their dance. The, the kind of dance and music that, that the Indic civilization has represented through the centuries is absolutely unique. And that is something that is borderless. Everybody can appreciate. In fact, many civilizations have drawn inspiration from that, from that source. And it, you recognize that it did come from India, from Indic civilization, but it does, it's not part of the Indian government. Mr. Modi has nothing to do with it, you know. And that's just to, to highlight, the, to, to contrast the, the two. Thank you. Actually, you have answered one of the questions that was online already. Uh, um, so I will skip that question. Mr. Chong, your, your question has been answered. Uh, now I'll go to the next gentleman in, who is in person here, and then I'll go to some of the other online questions. And uh, Mr. Blahari, it's a wonderful session. Myself, uh, Dr. Ram from ACE International Private Limited. I'm the founder and managing director. Uh, earlier, I was the staff in NUS as well. Uh, so it is uh, making us to think the traditional way to live uh, adopted with the culture and the modern civilization, what we are seeing in Singapore. Especially, we are getting more migrated people who are coming to work, who are coming to learn, and who are making themselves to retain here and their inheritance as well. So the modern civilization, as you pointed out, how it would be going to influence the sustainability development goals in the United Nations, whether it is going to make a, some kind of remarks as well as the conditions to follow the code of practice. Because Singapore people, we wanted to go global. And when we are getting cultivated and motivated from Singapore, it could be restricting us to explore well, as you mentioned, the national level of politics as well as the conditions. We could not be able to explore well. If it is coming from the UN, uh, they can re uh, realize and uh, revision all these reviews, then it would be a point of thing we can able to explore well to the global side. Your views. Uh, that's, that's, uh, has a, ramifications of that question are very great. And this is, it reminds me to say something that I didn't have a chance to go into. It reminds me to say that this is not a single problem that stays still that you can, you can just solve because it's just there. It is a moving target. It, it, it is itself moving. The fact is that, for example, we now talk about the Singapore, Singaporean population actually shrinking in, in relation to the total population, that we're having new migrants and they have to adjust to a, a Singapore condition. So that will continue. I, I don't expect that to, to change. You, you mentioned both the global aspirations of the Singaporeans. At the same time, the Singaporeans are also tremendously locked in into their own local interests. That kind of local 
loves the things that Singaporeans love and, and, and long for when they're away and so on are very clear. We do, we do have that measure. So the, the levels are many, many levels. And each level, there are different operations concerned. But when you have new migrants coming in, obviously they are bringing with them their own civilizational and cultural values. And what they have to do is to try and adjust themselves or adapt themselves to Singaporean ways. Now, this is not going to be a, a straightforward uh, uh, overnight matter. It is something that needs continual attention, which is why I said I'm not suggesting it is at all easy. It is something that you have to continually watch out for and deal with, particularly because all these things are changing at the same time. In fact, quite frankly, I've said this before, as an old man now, I deeply regret the most the thing I greatly, most greatly re re regret is the fact that when I was young, things moved very slowly. Things that I had time to think about what's going to happen and so on. Nowadays, every day there's something happening. I no longer can keep up, so I greatly regret the speed of things that are happening. Now, that very speed affects this same question that I'm raising today. Um, the, the, the fact is that all these new elements require now speedy attention, not only deep attention, but speedier attention. So unless you have some of the principles clear in your own mind, your speedy reactions could make bad mistakes if you hastily do things. If you had not thought through what it all means in the long run, you are quite likely to make very bad mistakes. So this question of adjusting yourself even to the timing is something that I, I really wish I didn't have to see in my lifetime. But see, to see myself so helpless in the face of all this, this, the, 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 the rapid changes that are happening around me. I mean, what the young Singaporeans are studying today, I look at them, I don't even understand the first step in what they're doing. So my goodness, what, what can I say about the future? So you can see that even what I say, there are limits to what I can even imagine. So I think, please bear that in mind. <laughs> thank you, thank you. If you just be patient, I'll take one of the online questions first. And this is from Professor Anthony Teo, and I'm bringing it back to Asia. He asked a very specific question about Timor-Leste. And I'll summarize this thing. Timor-Leste represents a redefinition of the idea of Southeast Asia. Uh, what do you think of this? Is this a wise move or a bridge too far? <laughs> I think this is, a, this is not, a, not a cultural civilization problem. It is a, it's a policy <laughs> problem on the part of the governments. Right. Right. And I think they're, for various reasons, it may be in the interests of the Thai-Nazian states to include Timor-Leste yeah. for its own reasons. Yeah. If they have a specific reason today, it is, it is not a, I would say it is not a, a general question. It's a very specific, specific question, question. Very specific okay. question. And only can be settled by a specific set of answers well, con concerned with actually, immediate interests of the region. Actually, only time will tell. <laughs> Please. Um, good evening, Prof Wang. I'm Edmund, uh, NUS alumnus. Earlier on, you mentioned about the concerns about um, that people have about Chinese populations in. I mean, this concern about Chinese population, large Chinese populations in, in Southeast Asia. And in Thailand, where they have the, a huge, uh, one of the largest overseas population of Chinese in Thailand, the Chinese seem to have assimilated and integrated quite well into Thailand. I mean, do you foresee a time when like, Singapore would be seen as so well integrated into ASEAN or Southeast Asia where there's less of a concern? 
Um, and in terms of education, uh, I, I really enjoyed your broad sweeps and your depth when you talked about the civilizational influence. Um, in terms of education in schools, in primary schools and secondary schools, um, what, what are your recommendations for learning of history, like what you spoke about, so that the children, Singaporean children at a young, younger age can appreciate um, being part of ASEAN and have a stronger sense of identity as being Southeast Asian. Thank you. Actually, I don't, I don't have to give you an answer for this one because the governments of all the countries in, in ASEAN have very, I would say, careful policies about what they want. Your examples of Thailand, for example. I mean, Thailand has been like that almost, you might say, seamlessly evolved for centuries. It, it has actually, in a way, been, because it was never been colonized, it was a, the, the Thai elites were allowed to actually play a bigger role in defining who was Thai and who was not, and they have success, succeeded in extraordinary ways. I would say the vast majority of those who call themselves Sino-Thai are so Thai that it would be hard to, for them to even to prove that they are Chinese. And it may be quite perfectly natural. And the fact that they, are rec they still see themselves, if, if at all, as Sino-Thai is simply an example of a memory of, of affectional, affectionate memory. It has no political significance. So again, the, the word culture and civilization comes back again because the word culture has boundaries. It has boundaries it is, and defined by nation states and what a country considers its national interest. And these, once you take these national interests into concern, then the people in that country must adapt and adjust accordingly to make sure of stability and order in, this, in, the, in that country is preserved. And you don't want to wreck it unless you particularly want to, or unless you're an agent of some other country. That, 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 but that's exactly what the countries are there to prevent. So all these things follow. Governments are perfectly aware of that. And Singapore could be facing the same, same sort of problem. Uh, who knows? But how long will it be Because it be, before we reach the condition of Thailand? I do not know. It's, it sounds like a very, very long time from now because it's not in the same position. If you start out with 100% Thai and bring Chinese in, and it took a long time to reach its present position when there are so many people of Chinese descent in Thailand. Singapore started the other way around. We had 75% Chinese, and the, the whole society and government is trying very hard to keep some of the ratios, ratios going, to keep it as it were normal, so that they don't have to change some fundamental things in the system. So there are so many other factors underlying it, whether it affects the housing or jobs and, uh, and uh, selection of people for, for specific uh, ratios of people and so on. All these things are happening every day. And that, I think, will probably continue and may have to continue for a long, long time. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Marit. Yeah. Good afternoon, Professor. Uh, my name is Sun Xi. I'm from China, a uh, school graduate. Yeah. If, if I'm not wrong, you know, pr Professor Wang, you ever said, that, you know, Actually, China prefers a uh, united ASEAN, but the united ASEAN must approach China, not against China. You know? And recently, Mr. Bilahari Koshkan also, you know, in a lecture, he mentioned, you know, although US and China 
both of them say they will not push ASEAN to take sides. But in fact, both of them are doing that. I also agree. I also agree. So my question is that even today, China is still uh, mainly continental superpower. U.S. is a maritime superpower. So the dispute and the clash between them actually are dividing ASEAN. So my question is that can you assess the possibility or risk that ASEAN may be divided into continental ASEAN and maritime ASEAN oh, that, in the future? Yeah, very specific question. That, that, that's a specific question. Yes. Well, I, I, I think that one I can try. But let me say, for your general question, I'd be, a, I'd be a very powerful person if I knew the answer. All these governments are inviting me to be an advisor to them to solve the problem. I don't have the answer to that one. In fact, I'm not sure anybody does, to be honest. Mm. And I, I don't want to speculate. It's pointless for me to speculate here. I can join you in an evening drink, and we can, we can speculate as much as we like. <laughs> but on your specific question about continental and, and maritime, maritime Southeast Asia, I think that is an interesting question. But the fact that they overcame that long, long while ago, I mean, in, as, long, as early as the 1990s, they had broken away from this idea of the original ASEAN, which was basically maritime, and brought in the continental together. And what has happened, this remarkable, so remarkable is that ever since 1999 to now, in the last 20 odd years, they have overcome a lot of their differences. When they don't even see eye to eye, they don't understand what the other side is talking about, the maritime and continent. You can see that in some of the discussions going on. They have managed to stay, and this is the key point, what are their common interests? If they all recognize that a common interest is to stay together, no matter what, because if they separate, they become vassals or just client states of whoever the power is. And if, if you don't want that, if you want that, that's different. If you want to be a client state, by all means. But if you don't want that, if you share that goal, then I would say continental or maritime doesn't matter all that much, because then you can really draw your common interest together. Ultimately, it's the survival of a sense of a region which, interestingly enough, did not have a name, were not self-conscious before 1945, but since then, all the efforts made to draw this picture of a region has been remarkably successful. The number of countries, people, all the, certainly all the elites in, 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 the, in the 10 countries are perfectly aware of this, and they all come to more or less different degrees of certainty that it is the common interest of all these 10 to stay together somehow. Lean a little bit now and then as the wind blows, and as the situation demands, but always with the same goal in mind, is that this region should be kept as a region that, is, that could play a part as a region. And it can only play a part if it stays a united region. I think that's the only way I can see it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The organizers have told me that we, they have extended question time by 10 minutes. I think because the last speaker is yet to arrive. So please carry on. <laughs> Um, good evening. I'm Elizabeth Baoxian. Um, thank you, Prof Wong, for your lecture. Um, it's more of a comment than a question. Uh, I've observed yesterday there were a few um, school groups who were doing heritage tours. 
I'm not very clear. Oh. No, don't speak too close to the mic because no. it's not. Okay, uh, it's more of a comment than um, a question. Mm -hmm. I made observations yesterday about some school groups having heritage tours. So um, basically, it's very monodirectional and a bit ritualistic, and it's a bit hard for tr for me to see how they were engaging with the materials. Um, and as you mentioned, it was possibly going to be an active curation between an exchange between culturalists and historians to determine what the culture is it that we want to you know, pass on to our future generations. But all these are just external scaffoldings. What do you think are the internal architecture that we should um, teach our children to have? Because at the end of the day, we would also want to have active discussion and where people can, you know, live their heritage? I think the, it's not, not going to be a simple answer, but the, I think the, the idea that you live your heritage is a good way of describing it, that you could, you could do that. And you could do that because you identify it as a civilizational thing that has no borders. It has, it has something to do with yourself, either internalizing within yourself or within your family and those akin to you and share your interests and so on. And what you have in common keeps you together and you have a shared heritage. But that heritage has no political implications. It doesn't, it's not defined by national interests. It is entirely defined by your own cultural leanings and your desires. Your desires to re retain what you believe to be beautiful and you want to keep it to yourself. You like it, you enjoy it, you believe it, you respect it, you keep it. And nobody should prevent you from keeping it because these values which are borderless are borderless. They're meant to be borderless. I mean, a perfect example of this actually, probably the most striking one today, which is absolutely uh, uh, clear to everybody, are things like knowledge, scientific knowledge and techni techni technological knowledge or economic knowledge, financial knowledge on these things. They are, they are borderless. Everybody can learn it. If you learn it, you apply it to whatever you need to do it. No, no nation can claim that this bunch of uh, ideas is entirely our own and you can't learn it. And as long as you're very clear about that, this doesn't belong to you or your particular country. It belongs to all of us. Any one of us can learn from it. And because it's good and I need it, I learn from it. And I learn it for my purposes and so on. So in the end, it is the agency of each one of us and each group of us, each family, each community, to see it in that way. This has got nothing to do with national interest. The national interest, this is very clear. This, now that we have the concept of nation state, as I said, we didn't have it before, but now that we have it, and we all actually enjoy it, we believe in it. This United Nations, when it was created, was created by everybody as an absolute brilliant idea that the idea of an organization of nations that are all equal in status, in fact, it may not be, but in status as equal, was a marvelous idea. As I said, it doesn't matter how big or small you are, that you are equal in status in that organization. It's a splendid idea. Def difficult to achieve, it may not be in fact achievable in the long run, but the effort to achieve it is something that we must fight for and keep going. That's national interest. But culturally, civilizationally, we should be able to learn from anybody we want to. Something that attracts us, it has nothing to do with national interest. It is something that I want for myself, and the civilization is so appealing that you don't care where it comes from in the end. Ultimately, I mean, I'm putting in an extreme case, but there's a whole range of possibilities. Thank you. Uh, I see Janadas is here, but we have three minutes left. 
And I, I'm not going to ask most of the questions that came online for two reasons. One is you have answered most of them, those that pertain to the Singapore identity, Singapore Chinese identity, and the others are just too specific. Right? <laughs> However, I'm going to hijack one of those questions and recast it for the final question as my, my question. This was a question on Ukraine. In this original form, it is rather too specific. Right? But I'll try to recast it. Mr. Putin has justified his war against Ukraine in civilizational terms. Uh, whether you believe it or not, never mind. But this is the justification. How do you think it has or has not affected how China looks at its own civilizational identity, its interests? Has it learned things to do or things not to do? I think for myself, yeah. I give you my answer. Yeah. There's a big difference between what the Putin's idea of civilizational yeah. terms and what the Chinese one yeah. is. The Putin's idea is actually based on the, the last 200 years yes. of enlightenment modern history in yeah. Europe, when nation states were created, national empires were created, and that they disagreed on very fundamental thing about freedom of capitalism and the freedom to redistribute wealth for the poor and the workers. I mean, these are, in fact, there are differences even within every society. But they've ideologically presented them as in opposites. And that is how Putin still sees it. And in, in those terms, his civilizational terms are still couched in that European context of disagreeing about the nature of the society. That a society that is really open to capitalism the way the rest of Europe is right at the borders of, of Russia was unacceptable to him, is what he defined it. So it's a very nasht, narrow civilizational concern. The Chinese civilizational one is actually not, not uh, free, free for the Chinese to choose. They've inherited 3,000 years of history, and they are mad about their history. They, they look at their history with great love and concern. They draw on their history almost invariably for almost everything in what they believe in. And they do believe that that continuity of the 3,000 years, the successes of its rises and falls, and that it has not always risen. It has fallen many times. It's been conquered by, China has been conquered by so many people. But in the end, the civilization survives all the conquests. It falls and it rises again. And this has given the Chinese a sense of civilizational continuity, which now has been to them added to and strengthened by a belief in the future which I spoke on last, week, last time, into a, a belief in the idea of progress, something that the Chinese never believed before in the past. Before, all they hoped for was to recover, to, get, to keep the continuity and recover and re, re, reinvent yourself continually in, within the context of an old ancient civilization, renewing it from time to time. But now, they actually believe in the idea of progress, the material progress that could go up either spirally or upwards, <coughs> developed by science and technology, entrepreneurship, economic and financial economic development, which they learned from the West. And they learned from the West, they don't, they don't hide it. They are saying, we learned from you. We've learned everything we want from you that we think are good for you. But if we think it's not good for us, we decide not to. Um, it so happens that that is the part that the Americans like. love. <laughs> you must have this, unless you have it, you haven't really learned from us. But this is what the Chinese yeah. dispute. So it's a dispute which, which is civilizational, and for which I can find no answer. So how can you, how can you satisfy both sides on a matter like that? And on that very uh, optimistic note, we shall <laughs> have to stop now. Uh, uh, so please join me in thanking Professor.
Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Kausika and Professor Wang. We extended the, the Q&A session because we thought you, you would want to hear more from Professor Wang and Mr. Kausika. But now, may I now invite IPS Director, Mr. Janadas Devon, to give his closing remarks. Okay. We have come to the end of uh, Professor Wang Gangu's um, lecture series, Living with Civilizations. I would like to thank him for delivering an amazingly erudite and far-ranging series of lectures, the likes of which we're not likely to hear again. It has prompted all of us to think more deeply about our region's place in the world and how this deep hinterland uh, informs our history. By examining the ancient civilizations that have influenced our region, namely the Cynic, the Indic, and the Islamic, he explored how Southeast Asia's relationship with each civilization has changed. Although Singapore and our region in general have modernized and globalized rapidly, the influence of these ancient civilizations remains. Uh, Professor Wang has given us much to think about when it comes to nation building and identity making in Singapore. He wears his learning so effortlessly and with such grace he elicits the admiration of all. We would be exceedingly lucky if we came across another one, two such scholars in our lifetime. I need not remind all of you that he's only 93 years old, young. <laughs> um, I would like to thank everyone else who has been involved in this lecture series including each of Professor Wang's moderators, um, Professor Kok Ken Woon, he's, he's here, Dr. Noor Sharil, uh, I'm not sure whether he's here, Elaine Ho, and of course, Bilahari. It is customary to announce the identity of the next SR Nathan Fellow at the conclusion of one series of lectures. Alas, I'm unable to do so, so it has to be good night and see you when we see you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear our views on the event. Please click our link on the Facebook feed or scan the QR code on the screen to submit your feedback. Thank you all for attending today's lecture. Have a good evening ahead. <laughs>